we're going to spend some time remembering some of the things that we've heard and read uh, in Exodus and connecting those things to how they get fulfilled, particularly in Matthew's Gospel. So kind of at a 40,000 foot level. And in order to do that, there's a structural literary device that I want to talk about for just a second to introduce this, because it, it'll help this make more sense. There's a fancy word um, that's called a chiasm. And I'd ask you to say that you know, with me or whatever, but it's cheesy. But try to remember it. It's important. And what, what that is, it's like two things that are a mere image of each other. So think of an hourglass maybe turned on its side so that it starts big and goes to a narrower place and then gets bigger again. So an example of this is Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. Those two books, written by the same person, are part one and part two of the story that Luke writes. And they're structured exactly in that way. You'll remember at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, it starts out with the whole world, right? There's Caesar, and he's commanding the whole world to go and be counted. And so it starts out with this power and authority in, in this global way. But the book is structured around Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. And all those narratives, they're called the travel narratives, because Jesus is on a journey. So it starts with the whole world, but gradually narrows down, down, down. Jesus is getting anxious. You can feel the tension and the, the rising conflict and, and, and you know, what's going to happen as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem. And then that's where most of the gospel, a third of it, occurs there in the last week of Jesus' life. And then the book of Acts, where does it start? It starts in Jerusalem, right? And, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, yes, it's going to start here, wait here, but when you receive the Holy Spirit, it's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and where? All the ends of the earth. And sure enough, that's what happens. And the, the, the interesting thing about this structure is the first half usually presents some theme that's surprising, but then in the second half, that theme just gets blown open in ways that are mind-blowing. So, so in Luke's Gospel, it's the only Gospel that includes women the way that Luke includes women, that includes Gentiles the way that it includes Gentiles, the outcasts. Jesus is... Um, coming, eating and drinking. And he's being criticized for doing this with tax collectors and sinners. Right? That's what's being introduced is that Jesus is here for who? The whole world. Anyone can come to me. This is the gospel where he's born in filth. So that the shepherds, unclean as they are, they can come straight to him and worship him without going home to change and shower first. Right? And, and so Jesus is presented for, as this gift for the whole world. And then in the book of Acts, it gets just mind-blowing. That theme gets thrown open to where now Gentiles and Jewish people are worshiping in the same churches and they're fighting about the, 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 the good you know, original Christians are having to kind of adjust to the fact that Jesus is here equally for all people. And it's, it's amazing. So, so that's the way it's structured. We see something similar to this in Exodus. 
and Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is a Jewish writer writing with a significant burden to communicate the message of Jesus to a Jewish audience. So it's no surprise that he's riffing on Exodus and on the Pentateuch as he structures his Gospel. And if we think about this, like the way that God starts His public ministry in the Bible is in Exodus. And the way specifically that He starts His public ministry is first by doing these miraculous signs, right? These plagues. And these plagues are designed to set His people free from oppression, to set them free from destruction. And then, and then He gives the law which we heard some today. He gives the law as, as almost like wedding vows. Like he's, he's set his people free from destruction, but now he's bringing them into a relationship with himself through the law that's given by his grace so that they can have this like rules of engagement for this relationship. And then after that, God sets up this um, rhythm, like almost a church calendar of feasts and sacrifices and all these different reasons that people would come to the tabernacle to worship Him. And every time they do that, they bring an offering. And every time that offering is offered, at the end of it, the priest lifts up his hands and he gives this blessing. And so that's the way God intervenes in history, starts His public ministry to inaugurate and maintain this relationship with His people. First, by these mighty signs, by these miracles. And then, by the law, the, the wedding vows, sort of. And then after that, this, this maintenance and this blessing. And what Matthew does, when he introduces the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he does the same thing, but just in that reverse order. And he's going to throw open this theme of, are you kidding me? The God of the universe, the one who made everything, the one who made me in the Old Testament, he's going to come and intervene in history. He's going to bend natural laws in order to introduce himself to the world and in order to gather this people to himself. That's the audacious thing that happens in Exodus. But the way that it happens in Matthew is just mind-blowing. So Matthew introduces Jesus' public ministry as starting with the blessing and then the giving of the law and then Ten miracles, just like there were ten plagues. There are ten miracles that reverse the effect of plague. Plague that we all experience. So, that's how we're going to look at this. But again, we're going to go kind of fast. And I usually have my phone up here, but I left it at home today. Joanna brought it, but she's way in the back. So hopefully it's not going to be too long of a sermon. It's a beautiful morning though, isn't it, to be outside? So nice. I mean, I don't think I would mind being out here for a while. But, but if it starts to get long, Joanna's really good at subtle signals. So maybe you could just scream and wave your arms if it starts to get too long. So I, I want to just take some time and, and first look at what happens in Exodus. And then we'll look at what happens in Matthew. And I hope appreciate uh, what we have what we have as people in this world, what we have particularly as Christians in this world. And I hope that hearing this, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. I hope that as you encounter God through His Word, that you're drawn in 
That's, that's what these Gospel writers want to happen. They want all of us to hear it and to be drawn in. And so we're really glad that you're here. So first, in Exodus, we see God showing up in three clear and powerful ways to establish and maintain a relationship with people who didn't really know Him yet. Um, and this is the beginning of God's public ministry. First, we've talked about that God delivers His people um, from slavery with ten miracles, then He gives the law, and then He routinely blesses. So as He delivers His people, remember when Aubrey preached on this, he noted that the refrain through all these different plagues that God does, the refrain as God explains why He's doing this is, so that you'll know who I am. So that you'll know that I'm more powerful than any other God. And I'm more just than any other God. And I'm more merciful than any other God. I want the world to know I exist and what I'm like. So the backbone of these miracles is certainly to set God's people free. That's the upshot. That's what happens in the end. But in doing this, in the way that God does this, He also wants to be known. And, and kind of, they're all pregnant with this question, who is this? Who even is this that, that the Nile obeys him? Who is this that the frogs obey him? Who can do things like this? He must be the king of creation. And indeed he is. And he's bending natural laws in order to bring his people into safety. And then once he does that and delivers them finally through the Red Sea to a place of safety, he gives the law, as we heard um, Mike read this morning, to forge this covenant marriage between himself and his people. We see that at Sinai. And, and then we see it again later on in Exodus. Just a few chapters later, it says, mm, after he's received the law and he's read it to everybody, it says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. See, it's almost like wedding vows. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, like sprinkled it on them and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So there's this sealing and this binding together that's forged in blood. Blood of a covenant. And that's the way that God forges this marriage. And then after that, He routinely blesses His people. He tells Moses, Say to Aaron, every time someone comes in here and makes a sacrifice, I want you to... This is really peculiar language. I want you to put my name on my people with these words. So tell Aaron and his sons, who are conducting these sacrifices with bloody hands, after doing this sacrifice, they're going to hold up their hands to this person or this family and say, the Lord Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the way I want you to put My name on My people. Isn't that beautiful? Like It just underscores this relationship. That God has not only done these miracles to, to bring them into safety and then given the law as wedding vows, but He's continuing to like put new oil in the engine of this relationship to keep it running 
smoothly and and uh, peacefully by constantly putting his name on his people this way, but reminding them of his heart for them and his um, his goodness as a husband. It's important to note before we move into Matthew's gospel to see how this theme of God intervening, of God drawing near in order to forge relationship, how does Matthew take that same theme and expand it in part two, so to speak, of this story? Before we do that, it's important to notice a couple of things. First, that God really does want relationship with us. Um, He wants to be known by His people. Um, We see that in the way that He's intervened so far. But it, it continues to be a theme in the Old Testament. We see it in the schematic um, of how the tabernacle and all the people of Israel are set up. God gives specific instructions. When we come here to worship, we all just come and we sit down wherever we want. And, but there's also a structure. Like we have the table where it is and we have the cross where it is. Um, ideally, we wouldn't have the podium here, but because of the way the speakers work, that's... But, you know, there's a reason for how stuff gets set up. And God gave specific instructions that the tabernacle is supposed to be in the very middle of the people, like a, like a, um, like a hub. And then all the camps of the Israelites, they're all aligned next to each other around a circle around this hub, so they all kind of come in like spokes. And so... As you think about that, what is it communicating? It's that I want to be in your midst. I want to be seen and accessible to everyone equally. I want to be seen and known. We see this metaphor of God as husband and Israel as his bride repeated throughout the Old Testament. That's a really important theme. All the prophets talk about it. All the prophets, their refrain of all the prophets, no matter what they have against Israel, no matter what good God wants to say, hey, you're doing this really well, but fix this. The refrain in all the prophets, whatever your preconception is of the prophets, maybe they're scolding a lot, and they are. They're reminding people of this, these vows that they took, and like, hey, you're breaking, God's, you're breaking your wedding vows in this way. But what's God's refrain? It's, return to me. Return to me. Return to me. Return to me. Every single prophet, every single generation has a prophet that God sends to say the same thing. Come back into this relationship. Come back. So one thing is that we see God really does want relationship. He wants to be known. He wants to be close. But second, it's... It's interesting, in, in all these stories, especially if you, as you think about Exodus, God is doing all this amazing, powerful stuff for relationship. But isn't it interesting that He does it all from a great distance? You can't avoid that. You've got to just name it. All those plagues that happened, where was God? We never saw Him, did we? There was a burning bush... But God used Moses to mediate all those things. He spoke to Moses. Moses had a, a staff that was is a, is a central figure in um, in Exodus. This stick of wood 
somehow God uses that to communicate His power and to mediate His power and, and deliverance. But we never see Him. When Mike read to us about what happens with the giving of the law, all this lightning and storm is happening on this mountain, but there's like police tape all around that mountain. And God is like, if you come past that, you're going to die. Like Moses can come up here and I'm going to talk to him and I'm going to write some stuff down and give it to him to convey to you, but don't you dare come here. No one did. And and we see as they go through the desert, you know, there's a cloud of, uh, of smoke and there's a pillar of fire and there's glory over the tabernacle but you can't that's that's it and and you can't get like into the most elaborate holy parts of the tabernacle because of the way that the the lord lays out the architecture of that place very clearly communicating this is as far as you can go so those are two really important things to think about there's this tension that we're left with that on one hand god obviously, earnestly wants you in relationship with Him. He wants people in relationship with Him. And He wants to be known by people. But, but we're left with the other part of that tension of, but, but you can only come so close because God is holy. And, and this is as far as we're going to get so far in the story. And maybe there will be more. But, but where it's left is that. An earnest desire and a lot of work that's happened to forge what we have so far in Exodus, but, but that's as far as you can come. So then, as we turn to the New Testament, particularly Matthew, who's writing to a Jewish audience and he's picking this story up, sure enough, as he introduces Jesus' public ministry, he's going to answer this question, what would happen if that God, if our God, if Yahweh, who did all of that stuff, what would happen if God, with all His love and power, came all the way here, not only to be seen by you, but to dwell in you? Like, that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. Based on what we've seen so far in Exodus. That Yahweh, the one who was on that mountain, Yahweh, the one who was sending those plagues, Yahweh, the one who didn't even give Aaron the words to say to his people to bless them, but gave them to Moses to give to Aaron. This God, who's so holy that he works always from a distance, what if that God wanted relationship with you earnestly, and He came all the way here to be seen by you, but also all the way here to actually live in you. We read in the Old Testament that God is going to write His law on our hearts. Like They had this idea of a greater intimacy that's going to happen some other time. John says in a couple of different places, talking about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we all experience as Christians. He says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's like taking three different colors of Play-Doh and just mushing them all together. Like, for ten minutes. And then, like, 
you can't get the red out of the green out of the blue. It's just a thing now, I don't even know what color it would be, of Play-Doh. They're inextricable. That's why we pour a little bit of wine into the, or a little bit of water into the wine at communion. It's a picture of humanity and Christ being mingled such that you can't disentangle them. John talks about this and Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. There's this theme that's introduced, but Matthew picks it up. And so let's just spend a little bit of time. And how am I? Are we... Wilson doesn't know. No one's actively sleeping that I can tell. But let's look at what Matthew does just quickly. And, and again, I hope that the upshot of this is for you, for you to enjoy um, your relationship with Christ more, appreciate more what, uh, how good the gospel is. But in Matthew chapter 5 through 9, we see these, the beginning of God's ministry in Exodus reversed in that chiasm structure. And Matthew, first, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, starts with the Beatitudes, the blessings, right? Blessed are this kind of person, and blessed are you when this happens to you, and blessed are you when you're like this. Jesus is just lavishing these people with blessing. So it starts with this fire hose of blessing that's coming from this teacher. And we don't really know who he is yet. The, the people don't, the way it's written. It's, but, but this person is pouring out these blessings. And then Jesus gives the law. The, the, the common refrain in chapter 5 especially, and into chapter 6, you've heard it said, which is a way that a teacher of the law would introduce Scripture. You know, you've heard it said, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, so Jesus is using this um, rhetorical device in teaching the law. And he says, you've heard it said, and then he quotes something from the law. Like, you shall not murder. But I tell you, now he's inserting himself next to the authority of Scripture, and, and, and he gives the law in this way. He says that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And as he speaks the law, see, think about the way that he teaches it in the Sermon on the Mount. The way that Jesus gives the law, if you listen, as you listen, in his hearing, he is writing God's law on your heart. It's happening just as you listen. Just as you read it. Hey, what does he say about murder? It's like, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, what about anger? Let's take murder and pull it upstream. And that's where I'm going to help you. Let's take it all the way into the depths of your heart. Because that's where I live with you. I'm moving into the depths of your heart and I get to decorate. And if there's a picture that's crooked, let's talk about it. Let's fix it. And it's not just if you cut someone's throat. 
Let's talk about the anger that has to be happening way before that happens. That's where I want to establish our relationship. That's the kind of stuff I want to talk about. That's the kind of stuff that now, as you follow me and pray this prayer I'm going to give you in this sermon, the Lord's Prayer that we say every Sunday, as you pray that prayer, you're essentially going to be saying with David, search me and know me and know my thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. But he does this with uh, several different components of the law following the same exact pattern. The one on oaths is, is interesting, right? Because we don't really think a lot in terms of taking oaths. But, you know, you've heard it said, you know, don't swear by this or don't swear by that. But I tell you, and basically Jesus says, you can't swear by anything. You can't even make one of the hairs on your head a certain color. You don't have any collateral. You just exist on this planet and I'm holding every part of you together by the word of my power and you just belong to me through and through. So there's really nothing that you own that you can, that you can put up as collateral. Just say yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. Like, Jesus is writing the law on our hearts even as He speaks. The, the one who spoke and the world came into existence is speaking His law to you in such a way that... Huh. And then at the end of the sermon, the people are like, this person speaks with authority like we've never heard before. Not anything like our scribes. So Jesus blesses then Jesus gives the law, again in reverse order from Exodus. And then Jesus performs ten miracles. Ten miracles, um, just like in Exodus. But, but interestingly, um, these miracles reverse um, plagues. And, and, and it's interesting too that these miracles reveal Jesus' identity, just like God kept saying in Exodus. It's repeated in the chapters 8 and 9 as we go through this rapid succession of this panorama of Jesus' sovereign command over all of creation. We keep hearing stuff like, who is this? Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey Him. Or, who does this person think He is? Only God can forgive sins. Right? When He heals the paralytic and, and says that your sins are forgiven. Unlike Exodus, God is now not working from a distance, but He's looking these people in the eye. Like they can smell each other's breath. The, 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 the leper that comes up to Jesus in the middle of a crowd and begs for mercy, Jesus heals him. He touches this guy, which you shouldn't do if the guy has leprosy. It's not allowed. Now they're both unclean, right? Except no. Now, Jesus is the same, but now the leper who was unclean is clean. It's, it's, it's fun to, to turn these miracles over in your mind and think about the situation that the person was in when they came to Jesus and how their situation has changed when they leave Jesus. Because it's way more, I think on purpose, than 
their circumstances are better. Jesus is getting in there to the heart of isolation and unworthiness and hopelessness and bondage and sinfulness and guilt and family of origin issues with some of these diseases or maladies that are genetic. So what would happen if God, with all His love and power, came to dwell in you? All these chapters drip with the immediate proximity of God with us. And as we close, I want to present a couple of ways that we can appreciate how far Jesus has come not to just be made man and dwell among us generally, but how far Jesus has come to dwell in your heart. Two things He's given us. That He's given us tons of things, but I just want to bring up two that we use regularly. One is the Lord's Prayer. As you pray that prayer, don't pray it to an abstracted God. Don't pray it to a Jesus who is somewhere else. Pray it in the plural, you and the Holy Spirit talking to God. He's in your heart. And when you pray the Lord's Prayer, think of the Holy Spirit right there with you as the decorator. The other one is the Lord's Supper. Just as Moses sprinkled God's people with blood and said, this is our vows. So we've been married by these words. By this Savior, by Jesus He's inviting us week after week to come and participate in this feast that celebrates the fact that we dwell in Him and He dwells in us and we're intertwined. And Jesus says in the words of institution that this is my blood of the new covenant. So as we do these things, let's rejoice in the distance that God has come with all of His love and with all of His power. But He hasn't stayed invisible so let's celebrate the fact that he's with us. Let's pray.